I'm Daniel Whitenack, and this is Go Time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back for another episode of Go Time. This is episode number four. Today we'll be talking about Go for data science and other interesting news and projects we've come across this week. I'm Eric St. Martin, and with me as always are our other amazing hosts, Brian Kettleson. Say hello, Brian. Hello. And also Carlicia Campos. Say hello, Carlicia. Glad to be here. Hi. And for anybody who's already listening, today we're joined by Daniel Whitenack, who is very vested in Go for Data Science. He's also going to be speaking at GopherCon this year about it. How are you, Daniel? Good. Good, good to be here. So uh, let's kick this episode off by talking about anything we've kind of run across this week in news and just random articles and things. What's everybody got? Hey, the biggest thing this week is the feature freeze for uh, Go 1.7. Uh, it was announced on the Golang Nuts and Golang Dev mailing list. There's a lot of changes in this with the SSA and compiler changes. So uh, everybody out there needs to download Go 1.7 and compile it, test your programs, because this is a really big change. And there's opportunity for breakage. Of course, our tests cover everything, but it, it's a, a big place for us. And the compile speeds are down, 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 down. I saw something about binaries. Is it vendoring binaries? I didn't have a chance to investigate. I was super interested. Does anybody know? Yeah, I think it was binary only packages, right? Uh, uh, without providing the, the source. Exactly. So right. you, can go, you can go get a binary only package now. So you can do it both ways? Correct. If you wanted to, to release a pre-compiled package that was only a binary with no source, you could do that by by giving somebody a URL to a GoGet or to use GoGet. Oh, I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Yeah, so kind of more along the lines of like the commercial um, packages and libraries that you can buy, say, for the Windows side of the world. So then if I'm using your your package as a binary, I can pop it in my project and use it as a binary. I don't know if it applies to pre-compiled libraries. I I think it was only commands, but... It would be interesting to see if it, it actually applied to the uh, library files, the A files. I'll have to look more into that. I just br I briefly saw something about that, um, and I kind of breezed over it. I've been really busy this week. But there's also there's something like 300 closed tickets for that release. Exciting. I'm excited for the uh, compile times. Yeah, me too. I can't wait to get back to 1.4 uh, speeds. We're getting closer. It's it's still fast or it's still slower than one four, but but we've regained a lot of that lost territory, and that makes everybody happy. So the the other interesting thing that I saw um, this week too was uh, Brad and Andrew's live coding sessions. Did you guys see that? Where they're uh, uh, putting a call out for people who want live code reviews. But that's frightening. I didn't see that, but that sounds great. Yeah, I didn't see it either, but I would love to. I would love to participate in that. I've seen a, I've seen them doing it in the past, and it's great. I don't know if you didn't have imposter syndrome before. Imagine <laughs> Brad and Andrew tearing up your code. 
you know, they're both great guys. So don't get me wrong. It's just, you know, that is a tough crowd to please. I don't know. I, I think that it would just, it would, it would just make my, uh, my own thoughts of myself come to light. Right. Like I knew it. <laughs> see, I knew I was terrible coder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Go time FM where we talk about our imposter syndrome for an hour. <laughs> uh, so there's, so- there's another big, uh, news item this week. And that was, uh, Peter Bergon's article about uh, his update of his Go Best Practices talk from 2014. He updated that to uh, 2016, and there's a lot of really good takeaways in there. I don't think we have time on the show to cover them all, but um, some some really good tips in there about dependency management, about testing, how to structure your library, what to name your packages, um, you name it. It's, it's covered really nicely in there. Like I said on Twitter, I think this is, is really canon. This should be uh, every Go developer should read this and, and try to internalize all of these rules because yeah. they're they're really good stuff. Yeah, I think it's going to take a while for me to unpack, but I think it's one of those things, um, you know, I have bookmarked and I'm going to visit every week. And and as I'm as I'm implementing different things, I think, you know, referencing that and just uh, just seeing if uh, seeing if I'm doing things in a, in a sane way is uh, is going to be great. Yeah, I think that that talk was a, a favorite still to this day from uh, GopherCon 2014. People really loved that talk. So it's it's fun to see him go back and kind of reflect on his thoughts and and to shoot down the things that he thought um, were the way. Although I don't know whether he he fully dismissed any of the concepts that he presented in 2014. I think his his um, he got a little looser on his beliefs on a couple of things and then a couple of added new ones. I need to read through it again. Kind of like you said, Daniel, that it's like that you read it one time and you're like, what did I just read? You kind of have to keep going back to it. Yeah. Something this big takes a long time to internalize all of it. I would love to take this talk or this, this, uh, this article, mix it with Dave Cheney's error handling article from a, a week or two ago and, you know, just put it on my pillow and sleep on it every night, hoping that I could absorb all of that at once. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm holding myself back because I don't want to be such a big fan girl. But for people new to the community and to go, Peter is definitely somebody to to absorb. And I would say Peter and Dave Cheney are big on like the top of my list as uh, as as far as best practices and things that I think uh, are very a good path to follow. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think coming into Go not too long ago, I think, of course, you, you search around at different uh, uh, Stack Overflow responses and whatever, and, and you can really get a mixed bag of, um, of ideas about, um, like Eric said, like about error handling or, or what, what have you. But um, kind of going to these resources, I found gives gives some clarity on on that mixed bag that you kind of find across the uh interweb i'm i'm interested to see some more best practices and stuff too um just to kind of compare and contrast right because i think people have different success stories with different things and especially when it comes to vendoring that can be a hot topic i mean we could probably talk for a full episode about vendoring i think we could have an entire gopher con on vendoring and still not get any <laughs> consensus from anybody <laughs> Who needs consensus? Nobody needs consensus. Good point. 
All right. So moving on, uh, interesting Go projects. And speaking on sleeping uh, and downloading information, Brian, with your uh, nightly download of cool projects. So here's here's one that I saw a couple of weeks ago, and I wasn't too sure about it because I just I didn't I didn't see all of the code there. But this one's called Gafka, G A F K A, and it's a suite of Go tools for managing Kafka clusters. Uh, it's at GitHub.com/funkygao/gafka, and it looks really complete now. Uh, very interesting if you manage Kafka, which a lot of people do. And it's got a lot of nice little Go commands and Go tools for working with your cluster. Things that will save you from uh, the ugly mounting of uh, Java shell scripts that you have to do generally when you're messing with Kafka. And so now this is just helpers for administering and kind of that that world for Kafka or this like replaces Sarama and some of those libraries for uh, it, client libraries. I didn't see any client libraries in there. This is this is only a suite of tools for managing the cluster, looking at uh, consumer groups, uh, that sort of thing. So lots of, I, I, I want to say there are at least a dozen different utilities in there for dealing with your cluster. And now, Daniel, you're, uh, I imagine you're quite versed in Kafka being from the data science world. Yeah, we, uh, we, we use Kafka in production. And uh, I think, you know, with this, um, I might be able to give those uh, Java Scala guys that run for their money. Um, I also saw, like, I, I like the, the part of it about um, uh, emitting health info to, to InfluxDB. Um, that's something I can, can imagine uh, being, being super useful on my end. Mm -hmm. All right, what else we got? Well, I ran into this concept of chat ops this past week from two different places. One was the remote meetup group they had somebody come in and do a talk about chat ops and they did it using uh hubbot github hub github Hubot. Hubot. i think it's Hubot, right? or, i think it's hubot hubot I, th okay. I think that's how you pronounce it that sounds right and he did a marvelous job he sh he said what it was he demonstrated it he did a demo uh, he explained how you can use it it was fantastic and i've never worked in a place that was using it. I don't even know if this is super new. I know the concept of, of chatbots is not, but the concept of having chat ops right there where you are doing your communication. And then I also came across this micro library, which is a Go library, is a microservices kit or library. And it has uh, capabilities for, for, for chatbots. And I love it that they make it, they say that um, they have a link, they have a blog post and we'll have a link to it. They said chat, uh, chat bots or chat ops bots should be a first class citizen. And I think it's great. I work on the command line a lot and I love it. But I also love the concept of bringing uh, operations into the place where you are communicating with people. And also all the extra capabilities that you can get from these, these new, more, more modern tools. You have to watch the, the remote meetup video to see what I'm talking about. I can't totally describe it, but worked with it. So it's not like, it's at the tip of my, my tongue here to describe. 
I was just fascinated and I definitely would love to work using this tool. So that it is. Yeah. And I think part of what, uh, what I see that that's appealing is, is kind of moving away from the being in Slack and, and, uh, always, always copy pasting screenshots of my, uh, of my terminal into, into the Slack channel. Um, <laughs> but rather like, you know, executing the command via the the chat bot and, and kind of having a human understandable uh, version of what I'm doing and enter right into the conversation. So everybody is on the same page and doesn't have to like wonder, you know, where, where I executed that and what my environment is and why it looks weird and getting over that hurdle. It's hard though, because I used to love the chat app stuff. And then I've been kind of pulled more and more away from it because I'm, I try not to look in the chat channels nearly as often <laughs> as I yeah. used to, because it gets really distracting. The and then you kind of see, yeah, you kind of see, um, your, your notification and then you look in there and it's like, oh, it's just somebody, you know, deploying something. Yeah, exactly. In and I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention that enough in a forgot. What I saw on this video was not so it was not at all notifications. Because yeah, we get notifications, we get these hookups and we, they are there. This was more about having extra features. Uh, for example, querying something and getting the response from different services across your your services. <laughs> um, it's more like you're in command and you're querying and you asking for information and maybe somebody else is there as well and you can share that information as opposed to being like just a passive consumer just like being dumped information i thought that was extremely cool yeah i think as from a framework perspective micro is probably the most interesting thing in the go world that's come out in 2016 because it it offers Ooh, that's bold <laughs> it, it, that is bold but you know i i called rails i called go i called docker you're gonna have to trust me on this one micro's big wow and it, it's big because it offers a, a much broader view of microservices it's not just a set of tools to help you make microservices it's a whole ecosystem and i think that's important because uh, making microservices on their own is not as important as deploying and managing and operating and consuming those microservices. So having that that big framework, that whole ecosystem of tools, I think will make microservices more accessible to everyone and certainly more manageable. And uh, the the chat ops is a great side of it, but it just goes to show the power of of Go's interfaces because it's the same interface that you can use to interact with it by Protobuf or by uh, a web page so you can take the same microservice in the micro framework and interact with it uh, from the command line you can interact with it from a web page you can interact with it from slack and it's all using that same interface so i think there's a lot of power behind this and uh, you need to start it in github because this one's going places and he's okay. hiring I, I saw a tweet this morning uh, asim Assam, asim aslam is the guy who's uh, running micro right now and, and he's looking for people Awesome. Um, I'm interested to see what comes out with it. So one thing that I came across this week was a project called Unique, which is spelled interesting. It's U-N-I-K. That wouldn't be the first way I'd think to, to spell it. But um, it's so one of the things I know that at least Brian and I have discussed before was kind of this whole motivation behind uh, containerization and microservices and things of that nature was how long before kind of unikernels 
started taking off. So one thing I came across was this project called Unique, which uh, allows you to compile your Go app, and it does Java and C and C++ as well, but compile it into a microkernel. And I've not yet played with it, but, or I'm sorry, a unikernel. So you got micro on my mind here. Sorry, <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> so I'm interested to see uh, what kind of comes along there and what people do with it and uh, how unikernels evolve. But do, do you guys have previous experience with unikernels in general? Uh, only in, in building some to play with for toy reasons, but I've... Uh -huh. Yeah, not so much as far as like production usage. Just I don't at all. So yeah, basically the notion of the unikernel is just it's uh, a really trimmed down kernel that uh, it's a, a bootable program, right? So, um, so, so when you look at your container, right, like PID one, the process that starts up is your application. So, but you still have an operating system that bootstraps that particular process. And then a unikernel is basically your app is the operating system. So, and I think they have some stuff tied in under the covers, but I, I'm no unikernel expert either. So I wouldn't take my, my word for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting concept and something that's been on my radar to, uh, to play around with, but uh, I haven't quite got there yet. So. so I think the interesting thing for me is, you know, from the security world, the, the most secure code is the code that isn't there. And the idea of a unikernel is that you take your app and only the pieces that you need to talk to the hardware and compile that down into something that, that feels like an operating system to run your app. So the attack surface of your application is significantly smaller because you don't have all of the extraneous stuff that comes in an Ubuntu distribution, for example. So you've only got the one port open because you're only listening on port 80. Uh, there's a significantly smaller attack surface. And I think that's, that's one of the main benefits of unikernels, at least in my mind. So I think we have roughly 30 minutes left in the show. So let's, uh, let's get chatting with Daniel about data science. Oh, this so, is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> We've been twitching for weeks to talk about data science. This is that's big. Brian Sweet, and I'm I, excited. <laughs> Brian and I are on the analytics side of things, but uh, cool. I mean, we've we spent a good what four or five years in this space working with analytics side and building software to support them. So yeah, on the fringe, <laughs> you could call us data scientists. You could call us the programmers that enable data scientists. <laughs> we're, so, the, we're the interns. <laughs> that's right. Maybe you could start for all of us. You know, can you give us kind of a background of of a primer? What is data science? Where where does it fit? What are the what are the things that are data science, and what are the things that aren't data science? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's definitely a good place to start because there are, depending on who you ask, you'll get very different answers. I think one one kind of useful uh, differentiator that I like to keep in mind is kind of what what is hashtag data science and what are you know people talking about you know when they say data science on Twitter and then what what are data scientists. Um, in, in, those employed as data scientists actually doing in, in industry. So I think in the first case, you know, what people are, are talking about a lot are things like AlphaGo um, beating the, the Go Grandmaster. So I, if you're not familiar, AlphaGo is, is a, a deep neural network trained by, by Google and, and uh, they, they basically uh, 
train train this neural network such that it could beat um, the grandmaster Go champion. Uh, Go being the uh, board game, not the uh, programming language. And um, I think that's uh, you know this is really amazing. This is this is a huge achievement and and should be talked about a lot. But then on the on the other side of things, then then you look at uh, you know what. What do data scientists, you know, the, most of them employed in industry, what are, what are they doing? Um, there was an interesting uh, article recently in, in Forbes that that actually pulled a bunch of data scientists and and um, and found out what what they spend their time doing. So so actually, a lot of it, um, ninety percent of it, was uh, was gathering data sets, so collecting data sets, um, you know, parsing data and extracting patterns for, from data. So about 90% of what data scientists do doesn't necessarily involve some nifty machine learning, but more uh, of the process of moving data around, transforming it and extracting patterns to you know, make it useful. Um, then that, that other kind of last 10% could be various things. So a little sliver of that is, is doing kind of uh, interesting machine learning techniques, um, maybe a, another sliver of that is is making dashboards or visualizations um, and then and then various other tasks. So I would say in general, for me, data science is is the process of transforming data wherever that might be into insights for for your business. And sometimes that might require, you know, a, a neural network, but pretty much always it requires some some problem solving and some ETL and um, and and maybe some some arithmetic. So I think those are a lot of the, uh, you know, kind of the pillars of, of data science. So I've, I've got a question for you, and this is, this sure. is a little bit crass, so forgive me in advance. But <laughs> I, I read an article a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, about how Target knows when your daughter's pregnant before you do. Yep. And, I, and it's, my, it's, it's, my wife, they, uh, my wife works for target and, uh, it's apparently true. <laughs> yeah. It, it scared the hell out of me. It really did yep. because, you know, people buying just the things that you buy every day, it, it never occurred to me that they could take the, the patterns of things that I buy, compare them to other patterns and, and realize, you know, Hey, this guy's getting a divorce. This one's pregnant. You know, these, these guys are having a baby next month. You know, they can tell by that data, uh, what my life is, you know, this is, it's, it's almost the, the metadata thing from the cell phone world. It, it's really scary. How much of data science is powered by commerce or is, is uh, how much of data science is being pushed because of commerce and how much of it is being pushed because of advertising? And, and then, you know, where does that fit in the, the grand scheme of things? What's the real driver behind the advances in data science? Yeah, sure. So I, I think, um, you know, if we look a little bit back, you know, over the years, um, maybe uh, I mean, I mean, there's been certain industries that have always kind of been involved in data science in some sense. If we look at like insurance um, companies or um, uh, other companies like that that are interested in, you know, assessing risk of a of a person based on things that have happened to them and and other things like that. So um, that's been that's been going on for for a while. And then there was kind of this time where people learned, oh, we can, you know, we can target target certain types of people with advertising. And so 
for a while there, you know, a lot of the a lot of the data science um, job postings were, you know, advertising related. Um, now, I think I, I think it would be fair to say that that data science or, you know, again, I'm, I'm calling data science this process of of creating like data driven insights um, is is really permeating pretty much um, every level of, of businesses. So uh, a lot of data scientists now are working, you know, to inform uh, inform even like internal business people, not not even necessarily to make make a company more um, more money directly, but they might be concerned about, you know, intelligently monitoring outages in their infrastructure. Right. Um, and that, then it goes all the way to from, from that kind of lowest level, all the way to, um, to the directly, uh, you know, applicable processes to, uh, to the money side of things having to do with marketing and, and improving your ads and, and all of that. So I think from the very lowest level on the back end processes all the way up to, um, you know, marketing yourselves to, to the outside world, I think you're seeing data science permeate all of that. Um, so, uh, so I think the, the idea is really that data scientists now, when, when, when you're employed and you're coming into a company, the, the idea is not necessarily to say, um, I'm going to come in and I'm going to optimize ads or I'm going to come in and I'm going to, um, you know, predict risk or predict fraud or whatever it is. But um, a lot of companies are building data science teams um, and embedding, even embedding data science teams across the organization to say, how, how do we make our processes in, at each level of our organization data-driven? It, it's interesting that you mentioned the the DevOps side of it. I, I know I didn't see the whole talk, but I saw the slides on a conference that happened a week or two ago. I, it, it escapes me which. Um, and I want to say the company was one of the, the bigger companies like Uber or Halo or something like that. And they were talking about how they use data science to reduce the false positives in their monitoring systems. So they knew... Yep. They knew because of of the the cycles and the patterns of their monitoring, uh, they could reduce the false positives, the the pages ninety percent of the time, and that cut down their uh, their duty calls while they were in the middle of of uh, an outage that wasn't really an outage by ninety percent. You know, there's there's real cost savings, real benefits behind that. Yeah, exactly. So in that case, you're really you're really optimizing a lot around your your business processes and your engineering processes. Um, yeah, that that's actually so that's from Uber. That's Uber their system Argos, which is their their alerting system. And actually, the um, on the back end of that, the time series database um, they wrote internally in Go. Um, uh, and and it's it's really I, I I was at that talk and it was it was super impressive. I was kind of blown away by the um, all of the intelligence that they're putting into that alerting and really making some pretty astounding gains in um, in reducing their their false positives. Oh, nice. Was that uh, was there any open source component to that? Have they released any of that yet? As far as I know, um, not. I mean, hopefully they will kind of given given the trends we've been been seeing lately. I mean, hopefully at some point they're they're able to release maybe the the database or the the front end or or whatever. Um, right now, uh, I think I think at least the last I saw, um, most of it was still still internal. 
Um, but they did discuss, uh, give a pretty good discussion of kind of their logic around, um, around how they're, they're modeling things and, and how they're hoping to kind of, uh, um, keep improving the system over time. So it's definitely an interesting, an interesting talk to, um, uh, to, uh, to see, I, I don't, I'm not sure if the video is up online. I, I, I know the slides are, so. All right, we'll put those in the show notes for sure. Let's yeah. talk for a moment about the kind of tools of the trade, um, kind of like what, what, what are the current tools of the trade languages and, and frameworks? And what do you see those being replaced with on the go side? Cause I know that's something that, you know, we've, we've chatted kind of back channel about that a bit and our excitement on watching some of these <laughs> things kind of evolve. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so I would say even just like a, a year ago, um, if I was to go to some data science event, um, one of the big questions was, you know, should I learn R or should I learn Python? So these are like the big or, or traditionally, you know, have been the, the big players in, in this space. So there's a lot of great tools. I'm not as familiar on the R side, but I worked a lot in Python. So you know, on the Python side, you've got a, a lot, this whole suite of, um, of numerical and data science type tools like Python pandas and uh, uh, SciPy, NumPy, um, all of these things. And uh, that, that was kind of how things, how things went for a while. Um, then, I, you know, recently, uh, when I that at that same conference where they discussed the the Uber alerting stuff, um, I was seeing definitely much more of an attitude in the community about well, you know, the question was posed, what what language should I learn? And I think they were expecting to hear you know R or Python, but the the answer that the speaker gave, who happened to be um, Josh Wills from uh, from Slack, um, he he basically said you know learn them all because every week I use. I use Python. I use um, I use JavaScript. I use uh, and he he mentioned Go as well. And um, I I think and I hope that the the community is kind of opening up to see that each of these languages um, has unique uh, unique capabilities and and unique use cases. And the the hope is that you know we don't kind of morph all of these these languages together as all kind of doing the same thing, but we, we utilize them where, um, where they're, where they're particularly, um, useful and utilize their, their unique features. Um, uh, and then of course there's, there's a whole suite of tools around kind of big data technologies, quote unquote, um, you know, like Apache Spark and Hadoop. And, uh, these are, these are mostly kind of Java Scala, um, applications. Um, but then even then, like, you know, a year ago or something, there was a lot on that side of things. It was Java Scala. And now you're seeing um, a, a kind of broader range. And there's things like, uh, like, you know, looking at InfluxDB or the time series database from, from Uber that Uber worked on, or even things like uh, Pachyderm is an interesting project that are big data frameworks that are not Java Scala based and utilizing technologies like Go and, and Docker. So I think there is, there is a shift going on right now in the community. I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen that, uh, any of that as well. I think Pachyderm is probably one of the more interesting things I've seen in a while because it, it almost takes that uh, you can do everything on your laptop 
philosophy with with Auk and said and 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 moves it into the Docker world. So instead of uh, piping Unix commands together, you're just piping Docker containers together, and that's that makes an interesting big data workflow, especially when you add something like um, Mesos or Kubernetes into the the mix, where you've got you know, large orchestrations of big data things happening. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few projects over the years where people have started trying to do, you know, text parsing and some probabilistic stuff um, in Go. But I mean, what was that project we ran across um, when we were, we were kind of researching this show? And it was, it was just astonishing how big that page was <laughs> of... Um, oh, yeah. Oh, for data science. Yeah, I know what oh. you're talking about. The, the Golang data library page. It's at uh, mjhall.org slash Golang dash data dash science dash libraries. And it's just it's a huge page full of data science libraries and go. And, and we all just kind of stopped and said, whoa, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's like, 500 links on this page. And I, I think there were two or three data libraries for go. But no, there's there's a lot. Yeah. And I and I think um, like something I've seen is even still, you talk to a lot of data people and they talk about um, Python or R and um, you hear about people working in those languages. But the more the, the, the newer companies that that I've that I've interacted with or contracted with, they are, are adopting Go and, and other kind of modern languages um, more readily. And they're they're not abandoning that strategy for data science. They're, they're also using um, those languages for for data science. And I think, you know, maybe no one's kind of rallying around a certain small subset of, of tools like they are in, in Python. So like pretty much the data science community is has, you know, rallied around pandas and, and SciPy and NumPy and, and these other tools. Maybe that that hasn't gone on in, in Go yet. Um, but there are, like you said, if, if you look into it, there are a lot of libraries um, that will allow you to do generally what you want to do, um, maybe with maybe with a little bit more investigation, but um, and and some some a little bit of custom you know uh, uh, package building on on your end, but but generally there's nothing pre- preventing you from doing those same things in Go. Now, are there any specific Go packages or frameworks that you're currently using? Sure. Yeah. So I, I mentioned um, Pachyderm. I I, um, I am using that currently. And had uh, have have had some great experience with that, and I also like very much like the idea that you can think in terms of these data pipelines and 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 think in terms of piping data from one container to another. And this is very useful because let's say I want to do something very efficiently um, concurrently at at one stage of my pipeline, I could write that very easily in Go, right, and wrap that up um, in a container. And then if there if there was a case where maybe like there's a very certain Python library that I'm very interested in, there's nothing preventing me from having that be part of another another stage of the pipeline. Um, generally, a, a lot of what I'm writing is is in Go, but it, you know I like that flexibility. I also like the reproducibility of it, which is a pretty huge problem in data science right now. Um, so the fact that you can commit what your input data, your output data at every stage of the pipeline is, is very useful and powerful, I think. Um, also, uh, I've, um, I've been using, you know, a variety of databases and, and you know, I recently used, uh, like bolt DB and, and looking at some, uh, uh, 
you know, other embedded databases has been useful for me to kind of speed up some operations. And then also um, uh, using some tools from from GoNum as well. So GoNum has a has a variety of packages that uh, that that they've are in is in development or or have been developed to, to some degree around uh, like matrix manipulation, implementation of of laypack and uh, and even even plotting uh, functionality. Um, so that's been useful because there's been been certain times like I'd, I'd like to do something in Go. Um, maybe the package doesn't exist, but I can take take stuff from GoNum and very easily implement um, the algorithm that that I'm wanting. For example, um, I recently did a K nearest neighbors sort of thing, and it, it was in the spirit of the you know Go proverb: uh, a little copying is is better than a little dependency. Um, I basically just just stole some of the the uh, the uh, Euclidean distance uh, functions and and that sort of thing out of GoNum and was able to throw together exactly the K nearest neighbors thing I, I wanted um, pretty quickly. Um, so those are some of the things that that I've been that I've been using. We did a project recently. I want to say it was last year where I needed to do some some data processing, and I found it really easy to take Python libraries and port them over to Go for data science type things. I, I can't uh -huh. remember what I needed to do. It was it was one of those numeric type things, but it, it really was not difficult at all and and very performant. Yeah. And I and I think part of the mindset of like in, in Go, you know, sometimes it's easier. I, I Something I've seen and maybe you guys comment on this is is doing um, in Go, sometimes, you know, it's just faster to write a for loop than it is to import a certain package to do some some uh, relatively simple thing. And I think it, it applies um, similar in, in like the context that, that you just described in that maybe there's not this very specific thing in Go that, that you want, but you can can steal a little bit from maybe porting over from from this Python package that describes it, what they did. And you can utilize some of the things from GoNum maybe and you can you can piece it together really quickly and and out of that, you get something that's very, very performant and something that you can put into the context of asynchronous communication and all of that that, that Go handles so, so well. So, Right. Matt Holt is in our back channel, which is uh, GoTimeFM channel on Slack, the Gophers chat. He said that uh, he implemented KNEARS Neighbor and Go for his machine learning class. He said, great experience, totally worth it just to inline it. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. <laughs> to, to your point, you know, I think that that's a good pattern when looking at importing dependencies in general, right? I mean, if you need one function, especially if it's small, do you need to import that giant library? And it, all of it has uh, implications, too. So it, it's, I guess it's always something to evaluate whenever you pull in a big dependency. Yeah. And there are a good number of packages related to data science, including machine learning packages. And um, I recently saw a data frames um, package called uh, Gota, um, G-O-T-A, that, um, that's, that's in development, which will be definitely very nice for kind of exploratory analysis, I, I think. But yeah, I think I, I would be sad if doing data science in, in Go just felt like doing data science in Python. 
for me, part of the the joy of, of Go is that I can kind of piece things together in this way. I can can take a little bit from here, bring over a little bit from Python maybe, um, and throw it together in a way that is very performant, very efficient, and very easy to deploy and has those unique characteristics. So it, yeah, that that's kind of my mindset, I guess. So what kind of advice do you have for somebody who wants to get started with playing in, in data science in Go? Do you have uh, resources or, or advice or places you like to send people? Sure, sure. So I think, um, first of all, like I said, I think, you know, doing data science in Go should be a little bit different. So I think, you know, definitely starting out, I would say that those kind of same resources that that other people starting out in Go find useful, like uh, um, like Peter's resources or or Dave Cheney's, um, and and kind of getting into that mindset of like what what is what is our kind of mindset and and programming Go? Why why do we do things in in this way and not that way? So those are definitely useful in in getting started and kind of playing around on the Go playground and and all of that. Um, then you know a lot of a lot of what i've learned has has been kind of trial and error you know importing uh importing this package and trying that or like writing my own own custom stuff i think um hopefully that's that's changing so um a lot of a lot of data scientists kind of come in uh come in to python and and try things in like jupyter notebooks um to try to figure out to try to figure out, uh, you know, what, what, uh, interactively, how does this work? So I'm hoping that w- one of the, one of the things I've been working on recently is a Jupyter kernel for, uh, uh, for go and it's, it's functional right now. It needs, needs some work, but I'm hoping that th- that along with, you know, further development of plotting things and other thing like that, um, other things like that will, will kind of ease the, the burden of people coming from like a Python world to, to the go world and be able to do some things interactively and see, um, see what, see what happens in that respect. Um, and then of course, you know, there's the, uh, kind of list of, of things that have already been done in go like, you know, influx DB and pachyderm and, and those sorts of things. And generally there's, uh, there's getting started, um, sections to those, those projects. So like in Pachyderm, they have a great, um, getting started, uh, example where they do uh, word count with simple, like grep and awk, uh, um, commands. And, and that's a, that's kind of a fun way to, to get started in doing data science in that way. Daniel, um, yeah. we shouldn't be surprised that you're going to talk about go and data science at the upcoming go for con. But can you give us a little teaser about the talk? Uh, sure. Who sure. should be looking forward to being there and uh, seeing that talk? Sure, sure. Uh, the uh, so it, it's still it's still in the works, but the uh, but um, the teaser I'll give is is that um, from start to finish, basically, um, I'm gonna do data science and do it, you know, hopefully in a, a distributed way all with go so um so starting out saying like this is this is a problem we want to solve we're going to explore the the data with with go tools um and then once we know what we're going to do we're going to implement something simple in go that will do that 
And then we can think about how will that scale and then we'll use a Go tool, maybe Pachyderm or, or something like that to, to scale that up and illustrate how you can kind of go through that whole data science process using using nothing but Go. Um, and then also I'll, I'll definitely provide some um, uh, call to action to the to the audience to start start doing some data sciencey things with Go and and um, and point them to some some packages and and some uh, projects that they can contribute to. So is it going to be like a live demo? Um, yeah, I mean it'll be a combination between uh, between some some code that I'll show on the uh, on the screen and then you know depending on uh, how things work out, I'm I'm hoping to show. Uh, Show some some type of uh, uh, live demo. So yeah, cool. I, I I say you got to go Kelsey Hightower or go home. Right. Yep, exactly. No, exactly. No slides. It's, it's a scary proposition, just, but it it could be uh, it could be a lot of fun. <laughs> just live code on the screen. If you yep. have slides, you have to deploy VMs that do this that, stuff from the right. slides. If, if sure, slides. sure. Actually, I'll. Uh, <laughs> I'll point to some Go Go notebooks, and you can uh, you can do it yourself in the notebook. Very cool. So speaking of Go Notebook, um, there's there's the Jupyter, right? And there's now a Go library for that. Or yes. Go so there's or... um, there's a, a, a working uh, kernel for for Jupyter. Um, uh, it's called Gopher Notes. Uh, I, I started this um, back in, I guess it was January. And um, it's it's functional now, so you can use it, you know, use it to make Go Notebooks. There's there's definitely um, you know, open issues and, and things to work on. So this is one of those things that I think hopefully some people find find useful right now, but is also a great place for people to get involved and uh, and kind of knock out some of those issues and get plotting, you know, enabled in the notebook. And and uh, I'm hoping, like I said, that this this um, this project will kind of help ease people into go for data science. And also, I think there is a part of data science that is very interactive. Like you want to explore the data, you want to see what it looks like, you want to plot a histogram. And a lot of that is interactive. So bringing kind of some of that interactivity to, to this world is, um, would, be, would be fun, so. And I think we're, we're running very short on time, but for anybody who's not aware, can you give kind of a brief rundown of what Jupyter is? Sure. Yeah. So Jupiter is there's, there's actually a whole ecosystem of, of Jupiter projects right now. So Jupiter is spelled J-U-P-Y-T-E-R. And um, the main project is is called Jupiter Notebooks. And and what you can do is you can start a Jupiter Notebook server on your on your computer. And then if you go to the browser, you can start um, you can you can start like a Python notebook. Um, and there's a lot of other kernels now, like you can start a, a Go notebook or a Scala notebook. And when you open that, it's a it's kind of similar to, you know, I don't know if anybody's used Mathematica before, but there's different cells and you can put code in those cells and evaluate that interactively. So it's live code in the cells, but you can also interject other things into the notebook. So you can put in markdown into the notebook and render that. You can put images in and then uh, and then you kind of have this whole, at the end of your notebook, you can hand that off to someone else and say, hey, here's what I did. You can also run it in your browser or you can export it as a PDF or a slideshow and share it with other people um, or turn it into a dashboard even. So there's a variety of kind of plugins that allow um, this functionality. 
Excellent. So we've we've just about exhausted our time here, but before we kind of transition into closing out the show, is there anything that you wanted a chance to kind of share with everybody that you have not got a chance to? Um, I think, you know, I think uh, a lot of what we talked about is, is definitely what I wanted to talk about. I would I would encourage people out there, you know, um, there are a good number of people doing data science and in, in go out there, even if they're not the most visible in the data science community. So I would say, you know, all of you go engineers out there, start start um, playing around with some of these data science applications. And I think you'll find that. Uh, that the experience is is really good and you can come out with some some great um um some great deliverables in in go and and things that can actually be deployed and and uh and you know scale and and all of those good things that we we like about go so the way we typically wrap this thing up is uh we have our free software friday hashtags where kind of all of us go around and thank some projects or contributors or both uh, that kind of are making our lives easier currently or in the past. Uh, so with that being said, Brian, who do you want to thank? So I, I know our rule is no more than one, but I have to forgive me in advance. <laughs> I did uh, three one week. It's cool. <laughs> okay, good. So the first is Ngrok from Alan Shreve. My God, if there isn't a day that I don't go by using without using Ngrok, it's just the best tool on the planet for sharing something that's running on your machine with people that are somewhere else. And uh, if you haven't used it, I think it's at ngrok.io, but you could just search for N-G-R-O-K. What an awesome tool. Use it constantly. I love Ngrok. And then, you know, kind of an extra special shout out to to the people in the Gopher.js room on the Gopher Slack who have had uh, unbelievable patience with my sad, sad JavaScript skills. Thank you, guys. (laughs) And Carlicia, how about you? I'm going to mention Jupyter Notebook and the Go kernel. And uh, Daniel did a great job describing Jupyter Notebook, but I still want to mention it because it is not just for data science. And I'm going to tell you why. I came across this commercial tool that is a notebook. Is a, and I was just, my mind was blown. I was like, this is the tool that I've looked for all my life. And it's what I use now to take notes. It has, like, just like Jupyter, it has cells. You can uh, have code cells or, or markdown cells or text cells. It's been the most amazing thing. And I kept telling my husband, I have a, he's a data scientist, and I kept telling him, you have to try this. It's the most amazing thing. And two weeks go by, and I'm telling him, you got to try, you got to try. He finally comes over and looks at it, and he's like, oh, I have this. And it's, but it's free and open source. It's called Jupyter. I'm like, that's what <laughs> Jupyter is. <laughs> that's what Jupyter is. Because I ran across Jupyter when I ran across the Go kernel that Daniel did for Go for Gala when I was browsing Go for Gala submissions. And then I went and looked at Jupyter and I looked at it. I don't understand what this is. It's not for me. And I, I'm not willing to spend the time. So I find this tool and then I figure, oh, that's what it is. So actually, last Sunday, I spent time setting up Jupyter and, and hooking, it, hooking up the gold kernel to it. And it is super amazing. And you, it's not just for data science. You can keep your notes. You can run code. I'm thinking I have ideas to put together Go uh, courses. And 
I would totally use Jupyter for that because everything is self-contained. I can have different sections. I can run the code right there and you can do a presentation. And you can, like, just like Daniel was saying, you can export it. And when you host it on GitHub, you see the whole thing all formatted. It's not, then it's not interactive, but the whole formatting is there and looks beautiful. It's great. I'm sold. Right. I, I kind of want to look at it just for normal note taking. Yeah. And, and, and thanks to Carlicia for, uh, for going through the setup and giving me feedback on the, the different issues as well. So definitely appreciate it and glad, uh, glad, um, people are, are starting to use it. So, yeah, I did run into just a super minor hiccup and I opened an issue. Daniel was so quick. It was like instantaneously responding to what I was asked, like having trouble with. And so I think he'll do the same for everybody. Uh-oh, she's setting precedent. Yeah, there's now. pressure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> on, on next week's show, we're going to talk about open source pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and how we can add more to the contributor. <laughs> <laughs> Setting expectations. So we, okay. uh, we also like to ask our guests, too, if there's anybody they kind of want to thank any projects they'd like to bring highlights to. Yeah, so so I I wanted to mention Vemgo um, because I, I've started using it recently. I know a lot of people use it out there, but I'm kind of a recent convert, and uh, I've just found it amazing. And uh, I think it's you know once once I kind of got in the process of, of using it and and uh, writing Go um, in in Vem with Vem, Vemgo, I think it's it's improved my my development process quite a bit. And I think um, that's that's really the one I would like to think. Um, which I think so. His name is uh, Fati. Is is mm-hmm. that how you say it? Yes. The Ar- Arslan. Yeah. So um, I, I'm definitely thankful to that, and I think it's. It's super powerful and can improve uh, can improve your workflow. Previously, I was using Atom, um, and uh, and now I've I've pretty much just been using Vemgo uh, uh, recently, and I, I think it's a great uh, great project. Yeah, Fatih is now a new dad, so congratulations to everybody. Baby's congrats! Awesome. Right. Congrats! Yeah, that's that's uh, a week ago, two weeks ago now. I don't think there's been a week that's gone by that we haven't talked about Vimgo. Yeah, one of us always, always <laughs> has Vimgo. And I'm going to play right along with it because who I'm going to think is NVim. I've, I'm, I've been a Vim user for a long time and then I kind of tinkered with NVim and then kind of, I forget, I don't even remember why I went back to Vim, to standard Vim. And then Brian's like, dude, why are you still using regular Vim? So I went back to NVim and I'm loving it. So, and then of course, it wouldn't be the same without Vimgo, so I'll thank Vimgo again. Yeah, is it Nemvim or Neovim? Ne- Neovim. Neovim. The, the Neovim. command line you type is Nvim. Yeah, and those are two great tastes that taste great together because Neovim does asynchronous processing, and Vimgo enables that very nicely. So you can do things like compile while you continue to edit, and that's not possible in regular Vim, and it's really tasty in Neovim. Oh, cool! You guys are giving me something to do after the talk ends. <laughs> <laughs> we're always learning always learning with vim it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it you still you, you find new plugins you find new versions so and i think we are actually out of time we're over time but it's been fun so it's uh, been a lot of fun yeah this has been great and i'm looking forward to your talk at GopherCon as well and uh and for anybody who wants to hear more from daniel you should attend his talk at GopherCon. 
Yep. So, and I'll be around and be, be happy to, to talk about Go and data science uh, uh, throughout the conference. So hit me up. Yeah, just on that note real quick, as we're wrapping up, we are going to have panels with the speakers in the afternoons. So uh, if, if you want to get some quality time in with the experts in the field, the afternoons at GopherCon are your time. GopherCon.com, buy your tickets now. Did that sound like a soap commercial? <laughs> <laughs> I tried. You got you to do the fast talking thing if you're going to do the commercial because you got to get it in that like five seconds. That's what I was going for. I guess I can't talk fast. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So I want to thank everybody who's on the show, the entire panel. I want everybody who is listening and who will be listening. Uh, definitely share the show if you guys want to hear more. Um, we're going to kind of vary topics between kind of community and what's going on and talking to people as well as deep dive technical content. Um, go to uh, gotime.fm. If you want to subscribe, we're GoTimeFM on Twitter. And then we also have a Slack channel if you want to catch uh, kind of back channel action during the shows. Uh, that's GoTimeFM on the Gopher Slack. And with that being said, uh, we also will be doing this thing live too. So we'll get a link up so that we can continue to do this. I think it's went really well this episode. So with that being said, uh, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, Daniel. Goodbye. Goodbye.